0: Hi, and welcome back to the BSF Lecture Talks on Matthew. I'm Abraham Lee, the teaching leader for the San Francisco region. And today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 21 through the first parable in chapter 22, as Jesus teaches us about his authority as the Messiah, the Son of God, the cornerstone and foundation rock of all we are in God's kingdom. Before we continue on to that talk, I just wanted to share with you a few announcements. If you look at this calendar here, we are on lesson 22. And we have eight more sessions to go. And the 30th session will be a group session in which we will share how the Lord had been working through your life as we study through the Matthew this term. Some other announcements for you to be aware of is uh, we are having groups now reconsider returning to in-person meetings as determined by your group leader in discussion with your members. If you are one of those groups that are planning on coming back to uh, in-person meetings, please discuss that with your group leader. And if you are actually meeting in the facilities at First Baptist Church, we would be happy to open up the building again and to uh, convene meeting in person at the Fellowship Hall at First Baptist Church. Just notify us and let us know, and we will make arrangements to open up the facilities for you two group leaders for next year are uh, needed we have about three or four positions that are open so if you'd like to uh, step up as the lord has put it on your heart to serve in this capacity please uh, have your um, group leader nominate you it's based on nomination and that you have to have studied in the bsf program for at least uh, a year. So if you have been with us for a year and you would like to moderate and facilitate a group, please contact us before April 4th at Biblestudy insf at gmail.com. Three, if you know of a, a church or an organization uh, a Christian organization that would like to like to start off a BSF small group at their location, uh, a new place, let us know and we'll help uh, you and that uh, organization get started and then four, uh, BSF is introducing next term study, which is the kingdom divided part two. So if you have gone through this program before, uh, you might have uh, studied through Joshua and Judges, uh, part two, which is Israel under Saul, David and Solomon, and part three is the part one, where they go through uh, the prophets in the early period, and then part two, is the post-exilic narrative books and all the prophets within this period and that's the one we're going to go through this fall so if you're interested i think you'll find it a great help to understand and review the prophet books of the prophets that sometimes are largely overlooked and uh, people find confusion uh, reading by themselves i think they'll be a great blessing to your discipleship then lastly just wanted to let you know that uh, bsf is continuing to receive tithes or donations to its ministry Uh, we have over several hundred thousand members throughout the world taking bsf and they are currently translating the material into arabic so it's already available in mandarin and cantonese in spanish and english and now they're working on arabic and it's a huge area of great need so if you would like to donate to this cause Please donate and make your checks out to that address, or you can go online and give by typing in class code 1232, 1232. The information is here for you to make of. So let's begin our talk. So the verse for this week is that Jesus said to them, Have you never read in scriptures the stone that builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Matthew 21 42 Jesus as the cornerstone So let let me begin the big idea is the authority of Jesus Christ our Yeshua who is the Messiah he is the authority and the aim or the uh, what this passage is causing us to learn is that those who reject Jesus authority will face judgment let me start off by sharing a story. You know, I had to build out a small storage shed in the back of uh, of the house, and uh, it was very tough. I had no idea it would be as tough as it was. It took me a, uh, maybe a span of two or three days to put it up. Uh, it was a modular piece that we bought, but still, uh, we didn't know uh, all the things, that, setbacks that we were in in for before we got started but do you know what happens if you try to build a small storage shed on a piece of ground that is not level and without a good foundation you will get a very warped and unstable building and I found this out almost learned it the hard way if I didn't stop halfway and then uh, tear things down noticing what I had done wrong in the first place if the first piece to this building is put together on unstable ground all the other subsequent pieces will not fit and the structural integrity all becomes jeopardized because the pieces are misaligned they become warped and eventually become so compromised that the whole building will collapse on you at any minute it will not only be very difficult to put into place together to get all the pieces to fit together but Even if you persisted and got it all together it will be so structurally unstable that it will have the potential of hurting someone very badly. So the only solution was to tear it down and then build a strong flat foundation for which the kids stand. In this lesson Jesus explains that he is the cornerstone to the architecture of our faith. Accepting and trusting his authority which was given to him by the Father will give us the eternal life that only he can give, and allow us to live with him in his eternal kingdom. So when we read through here, it start, the passage starts off with the uh, story of Jesus approaching a fig tree. He was hungry and went to the fig tree to partake of its fruit, but when he got there, he found there was no fruit on the tree, although it looked like it was leafy enough to be bearing fruit in its season. What well, it says it's not in its season. So I went back in and studied what is the fig tree and how does it grow? And it's a, I found out it's a very unique tree, unlike many other fruit-bearing trees. So, But before I go into that, um, it, it, it had this appearance of uh, being decorated in a way as to look like it was going to have lots of fruit. So when Jesus took away the ability of the tree from bearing fruit and it withered, Um, It may come as a surprise for many of us to read that almost uh, a bit harsh But there was an important point that he was driving at which was a teachable moment for his disciples when they came up to see a withered tree It was very important for Jesus to Illustrate an important point about trusting in his authority Now, please 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 do not misunderstand here. What is going on? as can happen when we take our focus off of what Jesus is teaching And keep looking at a withered tree don't look at the withered tree as much as look at what Jesus is saying Jesus is not speaking to the tree as if the tree had a soul or cognition and could do something about its own state he used it as an illustration of people the very people he cared about and wanted to teach so that they really understood rightly understood the scripture and who he was and how they needed to have faith in him we also Created and redeemed for fruit bearing. We are created and redeemed for fruit bearing, always ready for every good work and purpose He has planned for us to do. But what happens when we keep uh, only maintaining an outward appearance of being or looking like a fruit bearing tree, only in the superficial way, but we lack the substance of it, never really act or engage in the life of an authentic and real Christian? ministering and serving into the body of Christ and in the world. What happens when in the daily living of life and the principles of Christ? Those are not practiced. Although we say that we should practice them, they are not observed. And church is not a body that the person loves and devotes himself or herself to, but is a performance. Christian life is a performance and a routine. And our life in the church is a tradition, it's a social club. One doesn't go to church to learn, to serve, to initiate and to act and imbibe in the rich life of Christ, seeing that being manifested in the health and vitality of Christ's body. Instead of ministering to that, instead they go to be entertained and to fulfill a a religious obligation or to meet up with friends, to feel good about having fulfilled some religious duty or to go because my kids have to go to learn about morality. But there's nothing deeper, life transforming or altering, that happens to you because you're not allowing your heart to be changed, and your mind drifts, and you don't really listen to anything or learn anything As you're, when you're there. It's already bad enough that we're only there for about an hour or so, but even while we're there, we're not fully mindful. Then Jesus says, you will never bear fruit and what fruit-bearing impression you're giving off, even that is fake, and it will be taken away from you. That fakery and the inauthenticity of your faith will be manifested for what it really truly is, an imitation, and that the faith in your life that you're pretending at will be withered, and it will be revealed for the weak thing that has no power in the spiritual life as it is. You see, when he says... Um, uh, The absence of fruit on this fig tree represents a picture of unbelieving Israel, it also is the picture of an unbelieving believer. Despite the external appearances of faithful and dutiful obedience to God, um, for Israel, the majority of Israel rejected God and God's offer of redemption through Christ. Both the fig tree and Israel represented an appearance of faithfulness, however, upon closer inspection, both were found to be fruitless. Jesus exercised his authority as the judge. I am reminded of the call to repentance that John the Baptist made to, his, to the people in Matthew 3 8 as well as Luke 3 8. If a person says he has a mindset of repentance as he approaches God, then this should really mean something. It means that we come activating into a series of changes that lead to bearing fruit in our lives. Let me remind you what John says to the Pharisees and Sadducees when they came to uh, watch him at the place of baptism. He said to them in verse uh, 7 here, he says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit then in keeping with repentance. So take special note of that in Matthew 3, 8 there where he says, Produce fruit then in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. God is patient, and He waits to observe what fruit you will bear, and the refreshment of your life such that it nourishes others. He waits for that. It gladdens the heart of God to see it, and yet He will not wait endlessly for you to make those connections and make those critical decisions. It's not that He's hungry for the fruit, He delights to see fruit born out of your life that flows into the lives of others, that enriches the family of God, the body of Christ. The truth should make profound changes in your your heart for the things of God. If you don't do this, there is an early judgment that comes wherein even that which you have will be taken from you and it will become a withered thing. Your life will become a withered, spiritual life will become a withered thing. So the fig tree is very distinctive in its fruit-bearing cycles from other trees. Fully-grown figs, uh, fig trees undergo two or four fruit-bearing times in a year, with the first fruit-bearing stage in the spring co- coinciding with the time of the Jewish Passover, which is this time when Jesus actually sees the tree and he goes up to it, just before he enters into Jerusalem. So these large fruit trees, um, the fig tree, should be bearing its first fruit at this time, but its larger fruit comes in the fall season. And that is often mistaken as the main fruit because it is so large and it's benefited from the warmer temperatures of the summer. But the first fruit comes at this time and Jesus is walking up to it to see if there were any fruit of this kind um, at this point. For a tree that is that large to be identified from a distance, This fig tree should have surely borne its first fruits by then, under each leaf, and Jesus may have been looking for that, but while giving the appearances of bearing fruit from afar, it wasn't really flourishing as it appeared. It was focusing all of its energies on leafing and showing nothing of bearing fruit, this first fruit. But instead of launching into a scientific rationale about shrivel tree, Jesus, when asked by his disciples, says, that this is an illustration of the futility of a superficial faith. He admonished a call to a bold faith. He explained that if they truly believed and did not doubt, then their faith would be consequential and powerful. That whatever they asked in prayer would be received. With God, the impossible becomes possible with prayer and faith. When we pray, it changes us and it activates new realities in righteousness. So principle number one, as you see here, so under division one where it says Jesus asserts his authority, the first division, we have the first principle, submitting to God is the only way we can bear spiritual fruit that glorifies God and blesses others. It's not a halfway thing. It's total submission to God and accepting his authority in our lives. If we have faith and do not doubt, we will see God remove mountains of doubt and unbelief. With with trust in God, we can share the salvation message and see hearts of stone turned to faith. We can see mountains of doubt and unbelief removed, as we persevere in God's mission. He will do amazing things in answer to their pra- in our prayers, and by seeing those prayers revealed, our faith deepens and becomes enriched, and we grow greater confidence in knowing that God is real and active in our lives. That's what a lot of people miss. They wonder what God is doing because they haven't made the decision to commit themselves fully. How do you see your faith being hampered from full commitment to the Lord uh, by your not completely surrendering to Christ's authority in all areas of your life? The fruits of righteousness is not something ethereal or theoretical. It is a real outcome that results in the person's life, which results in fruit-bearing. Jesus points out how our faith is so important to producing amazing fruit, amazing fruit, to accomplish those things you did not think possible, uh, like withering a tree or moving mountains. He says, You will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So important that in prayer we are aligning our will to the will of God. That's verse 21 22. You will receive whatever you ask in prayer only when you align your will to the will of the Father that you understand what his will is so that those becomes your prayer requests the Pharisees in particular are these leafy trees and he's judging them first and foremost here they look like they have they should be bearing fruit because they have all the appearance of it they have the right credentials pedigree their positions and titles they look refined and they have ornamental robes but this situation This is a situation where the clothes do not make the man. The clothes do not make the man. These things all belie a hollow, artificial, fake religiosity that has nothing to do with the substance of the real spiritual reality of Christ. They do nothing. They provide nothing. But people who are religious, just merely religious, often find themselves quite content with the superficiality of their faith. They have rejected the king and his invitation, and they would kill his emissaries and his invitation and even his son. They are like the man who arrives to the wedding without the right wedding garments, and they refuse the robe of righteousness that only the Savior can give them. They come because they heard the invitation, but they may not believe in the authority of the Son of God. So now, after Jesus enters uh, Jerusalem, he heads directly to the temple and starts teaching. So he enters into the temple and starts teaching, and uh, it's kind of like going into the university and start teaching students who are hoarding around you because uh, they're super interested in what you have to say. And then other professors are walking by and thinking, "Who are who is this? <laughs> it, I don't I don't recognize this teacher." Well, uh, in the same way, the rabbis come by and they not the rabbis, but the teachers of the law. And they come, they question him. They wanted to know by what authority and whose authority Jesus was teaching and healing in the temple courts. Jesus knew in their hearts that they only believed in their human authority, that they would not believe in the authority of God, which was clearly manifested in John's life. And Jawan was supernaturally and powerfully uh, impactful in the communities that he ministered in. Um, and still they didn't believe him. They knew the people's lives were changed by John's ministry of repentance. But the teachers of the law uh, didn't accept it. They believed it was from men. They believed that authority was from men. But if they acknowledged that, uh, then they were afraid that the people gathered here, because they all understood John to be sent of God. But if they also confessed that the, John was uh, given the authority by God, then they would have had to believed him and believed in Jesus, who John professed to be the Son of God. But they loved to be honored by the people on the streets, and they were afraid to confess and relinquish man-made authority for the authority given by God. This is what happens today, too, right? People don't want to accept and recognize the authority of Christ given by God himself. So what did the religious, religious leaders reveal by their answer to Jesus when he questioned them about the authority of John? Well, uh, these religious leaders who were supposed to be Israel's teachers of God rejected Jesus, rejected his authority, and have no understanding, therefore, except to be left with a cloudy resentment and, and doubt in what they know. So Jesus' masterful question about John presented to these teachers really revealed them for what they uh have in their hearts which is this uh, immense confusion about their own beliefs and uh and the role of god's authority in their lives so the second division here is that jesus illustrates god's judgment through parables right and so the principle that falls under that is as we enter into these parables jesus will teach Uh, about the judgment against those who reject his authority is that when we fail to recognize Jesus' authority for ourselves, we are in effect rejecting the authority of God himself and his lordship in our lives. When we fail to accept Jesus, we are rejecting God himself. And that rejection results in judgment. The religious leaders revealed that they were so encroached and tangled up in their own authority, the man-made authority, and the love of popular opinion, they had no room to accept the truth of God in Christ. So in effect, they got their answer, even as Jesus said He would not tell them. He told them far more about their own nature and the nature of their heart in their attempt to embarrass Him. They were revealed for the pretenders that they were, and by revealing this, the Lord held open a door for them to repent. When modern society, when we apply this to modern society, with all its professed certainties of knowing factual things, it is easy for many people to say they want to be rationalist and look at evidence and make logical uh, deductions, uh, really pointing to their own minds as the authority for all that they know. Then in this process, they disregard all the learning and discussions of thousands of years of the ancients and stick to the learning of today Uh, through the sciences uh, to declare that they trust in the authority of science and technology and scientists and technologists for matters of everything, even in the issues of spiritual things, the future, and the kingdom of God. So you have the authority of man triumphing over the authority that was revealed in Christ through God's word. So one of the key ways in which Satan works doubt into the authority of, uh, against the authority of God is to have us ask within ourselves and he's always bringing this up as he did to Adam and Eve in the garden did God really say that did God really say so God spoke explicitly clear through his word everything that we needed to know about ourselves and the life to come and he charged Adam to be teaching Eve and to declaring his word and that is actually the ministry of teaching and imbibing another into the Word of God that is the ministry not only given to Adam but to all of us in the church, to one another, receiving God's word and recognizing God's authority. So the scene offers a warning for all of us today. The chief priests and teachers of the law rejected undeniable evidence of Jesus' divine authority, the miracles, the healings, the exorcisms. It was undeniable, but they asked questions, not with a desire to believe what was true, but because they saw themselves as the one who delegated authority and they didn't want anyone ruining their parade. Continual denial of truth eventually leads to God's silence. And that's a scary thing. The authority of Jesus must stand firm and true above all other claims of authority. Why? Because our thinking will and is always will be incomplete. Let me repeat that. Our thinking as humans are always incomplete. The scientific process is always a process of endless discovery and models will continue to change and our thinking about things will continue to adapt and pivot by every new finding that we learn. Our thinking is always incomplete but God's word is complete and eternal and will not change and that we can rest on for sure. So Jesus knows that the people will perish without their submitting to his authority and salvation. There is his judgment for all who rely on anything else other than Jesus. So Jesus teaches them in parables about the judgment to come for those who refuse his authority. Parables emphasize and drive home important spiritual truths. Uh, One ancient rabbi said that teaching scripture without a parable is like trying to use a basket without handles. It's hard to get a hold of. So here we have in the first parable, the parable of two sons. Both sons rejected the father's authority, the first son by his initial refusal and the second son by failing to keep this word. The father in this parable represents God the father, of course, whose authority is rejected. But the first son depicts all of those like the prostitutes and tax collectors who initially rejected God but had a change of heart. And the second son uh, reflected the Pharisees and teachers of the law and the chief priests who professed obedience and said they were followers of God but refused to accept Jesus in the areas in which authenticity and real acceptance in their heart should have shown. So Jesus asked them in telling this parable, which of the two did the father's will? They replied, the first son. They knew that the first son was the one that did the father's will, even though they came late to realize that they should. In the same way, the ones who eventually believed and obeyed were the latecomers, so to speak, the sinners and tax collectors. While those who first heard the word but never entered into true faith so it would change their lives, rejected it, they dismissed the authority of God, the Father who sent his Son, Jesus Christ, as their Savior. All the while, they lived with a self-deceived pretense of faith in God. So later, we come again to Jesus teaching about the cornerstone. What did Jesus mean when he spoke of the cornerstone in verse 42? And how does his comments relate to parable and Israel and their religious leaders? Well, again, you have to understand what the cornerstone is. Back then, they didn't build uh, concrete foundations for buildings like we do today. They started off flattening the ground against sand, and then they installed uh, a standard stone, a, a stone that guided all the other processes of stone laying to come, and that was called the cornerstone. That cornerstone structurally was an important marker that guided the structural components of all the other rocks and stones that came and built and laid out the foundation for the building that was built on top. It allowed all the other stones laid down to be plumb and parallel and in alignment to each other. So if the cornerstone was flawed, the whole building would have been crooked and unstable. And furthermore, this critical cornerstone couldn't be used in another place. Because if you did it would have caused even more instability it just wouldn't fit as soon as you tried to do that replacing it as a third or fourth or fifth stone not the first stone it would no longer act as the cornerstone and all the other stones lining up against it would be put out of kilter and because it was so large determining the x y and z axis of the building all the stones that would go on the side and above If you didn't place it at the corner, it was not going to be able to accommodate. It wouldn't have fit in anywhere else. This means, and it tells us actually a lot, this means you can't just try to squeeze Jesus somewhere else in your life as a backup, as a backup plan. Like, you know, a lot of us do, and I know I'm guilty of this at our house. We have a lot of junk laid away in our uh, just in case junk that we store away for the rainy day seasons or we think we're going to use again in our garage or in our basement. Uh, but we never do, and it accumulates. Um, we can't use Jesus like that. Jesus can only fit in as the key authority and as the first cornerstone over all of our lives. He is the benchmark for everything else that comes in thereafter. He's not second, he's not third. He is the marker and he is the cornerstone. He, he's the one that makes all the revealed message of God given to us through the Old, Old Testament and the prophets, the law. He's the only one that makes it make sense. He is the one who holds all reality and the universe together as he is the maker of all that we see and know. But sin has caused men's heart to reject and turn from him, to reject what he has been teaching and offering through himself. So we do this even today as we reject his claim to authority and his authority over our lives. And reject his plan of salvation for us just out of hand. And we replace it with our own idea, whether we become in an maniacal way, we become the authority or we lay that authority up to the sciences or some method or some technology. And we see ourselves falling um, in idol worship to those things eventually when we give it that kind of uh, authority and priority in our lives. For the sake of time, because I have been going over time this session, I just wanted to remind you to go back and read the parable of the tenants found in uh, chapter 21, 33, which I had skipped. Uh, That Jesus is referring to um, when he talks about the landowner who plants a vineyard. It, that is a reference to Isaiah chapter 5. So, if you uh, would go back there and reread Isaiah chapter 5, uh, you will see that Jesus is hearkening to something that the Pharisees and teachers of the law would have uh, all understood and have known and maybe even memorized. So, they would know uh, what he was addressing here. As he's talking about uh, fruitfulness, how God desires abundance, and how he desires the leaders to be cultivating and managing the process of fruit-bearing among God's people faithfully. So going on to the last parable, uh, just because I'm lacking time here. So this last uh, parable that we're looking at in chapter 22 describes a king who has prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Now, anytime a wedding banquet is described in scripture, it is oftentimes a symbol and a, meta- a metaphor, maybe even also a motif, representing heaven itself. Heaven is a place of great joy and celebration in the victory and triumph of the fulfillment of all things accomplished by the Son so it is a celebration of God in which the joy of his heart is on display for all nations all principalities and powers in heaven above and earth below gain witness to and experience the glory of God in the fruition and fulfillment of all that he has promised so God calls us to be with him in that moment and with his people to celebrate what he is doing and has done in our lives Your response to God's invitation here is critical because, you know, it's interesting here uh, that he celebrates and he, he longs to bring more and more people in, but they all repeatedly tell him that they're too busy or they have other plans. Your response to God's invitation to celebrate reveals what is most important to you. He is often calling you into celebration, to worship, celebration, to be involved in the things that he cares about. And that's what the Holy Spirit always provokes in our hearts is if you feel like you're lost, you need to reach out to the Holy Spirit because he's the only one. Like our spirit knows our heart, God's spirit knows the heart of God. And he communicates the heart of God to our hearts so that we know what God's heart and what his passions and what his priorities are. So if you feel lost or you feel like you don't know or understand God's game plan, uh, how you fit in uh, and you you can fit in your um, purposes in life to match up with God's, then you need to pray and ask the Lord to have grace and mercy on your life, to speak to you by the Holy Spirit, to reveal his passions and his projects and what he's excited about and how you can be on board With the heart of god in all matters of what is happening in the world today what can you point out in your relationship to god that are elements of that great celebration like this banquet Uh, are there points of joy and celebration that you can reach out to and say this is a representation or a small part of a greater glory that i'm going to be entering into in the future Remember also that in this parable, God repeatedly sends his servants to implore, to beg those who had been invited to come, but they refuse each time. It shows how merciful God is, how ardently and persistently God reaches out to those who had been given the truth of his word and promises uh, for the ages that he's explained and explained and explained and sent many prophets to explain, and now the apostles. Now he has the church to explain. God is patient and is not quick to wrath. He is not desiring that any should perish, but that all would come to faith in Christ. So a final point to look at here is that there is a person who does come to the feast without wedding clothes. This illustrates the person who wants to be saved on their own terms. They think it's all right to wear their own righteous garments to be accepted, accepted at God's holy banquet. They are relying on their own good works. They represent those who, you know, go to church and do all the right things, but don't have a relationship with God at all, who try to put on Christ, the cornerstone, in a secondary spot, like I had talked about before, not in the proper place of authority as the first and main cornerstone where all the other things must align, but instead they try to put him at the back at the la- as the last stone or maybe even a secondary stone. Jesus shows us that we cannot enter into the joy of the banquet on our own merits, but the invited guests must take on the robe provided by the bridegroom, Christ himself. And that is where these verses are so critical, where it says in Isaiah 64, 6, all of us has become like one who is unclean, and our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And Isaiah 61 tells us that instead, I delight greatly in the Lord, my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in robes of righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So I conclude there, and I'd like for us to all to be thinking about the wedding wedding clothes that we are trying to adorn ourselves with. Are we putting on the image of Christ and living into his presence and his image every day? I could not cover up my shame and my empty self with my own clothes. As Adam and Eve were naked and realized their nakedness, we also must realize our utmost need for covering through the sun, not with these little tiny fig leaves or tree leaves that we're trying to cover up our shame with. We need to put on the wedding clothes that has been bought and prepared for us by our perfect bridegroom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have done all things well. We thank you, Lord, for the glorious Son who has come to rescue us and fulfill all of your promises. And those promises have not even finished yet. This is now the start. You have saved us, but you have now also called us into the kingdom of God for which we will see being unfolded in times to come into the glorious wedding feast of the Lamb. We rejoice in you and we declare you, Lord, The great joy and bliss of our lives, Lord, you are the one we celebrate and we worship and we declare as our sole authority and we submit all of our lives to you. If we have not done so, Lord, help us to increasingly authenticate our faith in you by declaring you as our cornerstone. We thank you for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.